When it comes to hard work, there's one important rule. Pick the right tool for the right job. That's why Chevy offers a family of Silverado pickup trucks designed just for the job. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. So this is a guy who lives high on the hog and he has this Tammany Hall style attitude to power. And um, it is, it's the Chicago way, absolutely. Look, the, the Chicago way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago way. The Chicago way, that's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand with pen and paper in his hand. Defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river. Castle. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Well, when I saw the title of a book, I just had to have it. And I ordered it on Amazon. It came immediately, and I took a photograph and told people on Twitter that I was reading it. It is the Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. And since I've been living my own tragedy, love story, breakup story with American media, I wanted to have the author, Amber Athey, on with us on the Chicago way to congratulate her on her book and to get her perspective on journalism in the United States today. Amber, welcome to the Chicago way. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Amber, so much. So great to have you here. Um, I know we've, we've, John and I have talked about this on the podcast, you know, for for a couple of years now, and this is our 400 and some episode. And the idea of, the indoctrination in institutions like you know universities that were producing people who are going to go out and, and take that mentality, that indoctrination of like ultra liberalism, the snowflake mentality into the real world. And we've John and I both saw it firsthand as it developed in the newsrooms we worked in where these younger crowd coming in and, and it's just it the dichotomy of what is reality or what is telling an accurate story kind of shifted to this clickbait, you know, DEI world. And that's kind of where we start with your book, right? I mean, take us through the, the, the impetus of where you started with writing this and, and where you kind of ended. Right. So the idea of the book basically came from a conversation that I had about my experience in college. And I went to Georgetown university, which is a very liberal school, um, it's Catholic in name only, basically. And exactly. uh, I, I just had, I had spent four years with these quote unquote snowflakes. And uh, the person that I was talking with was like, well, where, like, what happened to these people? Where did they go? Like, what, what, what becomes of the snowflake when they enter the so-called real world? Because I think there was this misconception among conservatives even for a long time that people will graduate from college, they'll start paying taxes, they'll moderate and everything will be fine. You know, they'll have bosses in the real world that don't let them get away with, with all of the the nonsense that they pull on campus. And as I did some 
cursory research of Mm -hmm. the worst offenders that I went to school with and what they were up to, I realized that they had basically used this ideology as a way to uh, elevate their career paths. And I saw a lot of them working in media, a lot of them working in the nonprofit or political space. And uh, when you see what's happening in newsrooms in particular, with low-level staff staffers basically determining the editorial direction of major newspapers and doing so in a way that adheres to a really radical left-wing ideology, I thought I have to write this story of of how the tactics that people are using to exercise control and influence in newsrooms is exactly the same thing that they were doing on college campuses. They didn't just disappear. They didn't melt. They didn't, um, they didn't become conservatives once they got to the real world. They just continued the victim mentality and the pressure campaigns and the, the protests and the, the smear merchant uh, type behavior to change newsrooms. And it's no wonder we're seeing the shift of the media that we have been when they're all being hired from these very liberal elite institutions. And and one of the points in your book too is you talk about the idea that they take this like activism into the to these newsrooms and then newsrooms go from being you know trying to tell the story of the day to telling telling the agenda of them and and what is what is something people should can you think can maybe look for when they if they're seeing stuff because I know obviously our audience is probably pretty conservative and you know and and is probably has their ears up and is always looking for you know snowflakes or, or BS in what they're reading. But what were some of the hallmarks or some of the hallmarks you think you've seen in, in some of these newsrooms that shifting to that point and, and what people are, are noticing, how it's changing? I mean, there's so many ways, um, even if you're just looking at the opinion page of a major media outlet and you just count how many articles lean to the left versus lean to the right. Mm-hmm. And what's also very illuminating is look at who the supposed conservative writers are. Like yeah. if you go to the Washington Post and the New York Times, right? you have maybe one actual conservative on the opinion pages. The rest are like uh, former Republicans or they consider themselves centrist or moderate. And then you read their opinion and it's, they're always railing against the right. They're always railing against conservatives. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, this is your conservative opinion writer. Okay. I mean, so that's one way, but then on the straight news side, I can usually tell within two sentences, whether an article is biased. And I think most people can, just with the framing of the issue, like it's always um, whenever Democrats do something, it's always um, painted in very positive terms. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever the Democrats do something bad, the story is not what the Democrats did. It's Republicans pouncing or Republicans seizing on the issue and daring to respond to what they've done. They're always pouncing. Yeah. What are, what are they, cats? <laughs> <laughs> right. They're little kitty cats. I don't like cats, by the way, but I mean, they're always pouncing. You know, every headline writer, Republicans pounce, they jump, they attack, they, every, every time. I, I just can't, uh, well, okay. We are speaking with the author, Amber Athe, the editor, an editor with The Spectator in Washington. And she's written the book called The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked the American Dream. 
And I ask you all to go with me now. We're, let's go to a wedding reception, the three of us, okay? Okay. We're in a wedding reception. There's John drinking his scotch and soda. Uh, Betty's telling me not to have any more. <laughs> and Jeff is not having anything. And then here comes Aunt Ida and Aunt Josephine, and they have a they have a a um, niece or nephew with them, and they want to talk to Amber Athey. And they ask a question: Our nephew Joey is going into journalism. Is that a good idea? <laughs> it's funny you ask that because. A couple of months ago, I was at an intern summit and I was speaking to young women and one of them came up to me afterwards and she said, should I go to journalism school? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> that is a terrible idea. And it turns out she went anyway. I ran into her um, recently in DC and she said, I went to journalism school and I dropped out because it was terrible. It was everything that you said it would be. And now I'm studying classics. Mm. <laughs> and I said, well, I hate to say I told you so, but uh, I'm glad that you figured it out fairly quickly. Um, I, I don't think the media as a profession, if you find the right gig, is necessarily bad. I'm, I'm obviously very happy with what I'm doing. Well, would you spend $40,000 to go to journalism school at no. Northwestern? No. I, no, I would never advise anyone to go to journalism school. And you can talk to anyone who's gone in the past like 10, 15 years. And they will tell right. you they don't teach journalistic basics. They don't teach journalistic ethics. All they teach is how to advance an ideology. They've become activist breeding grounds. And uh, the major mainstream papers that get a lot of play, like the New York Times, a vast majority of their staff are hired from elite journalism schools like Columbia Journalism School. Um, most of their graduates come from places like Harvard, Yale, the worst offenders when it comes to being liberally biased. I, I, I did a comparison in the book, actually, yes. of the educational attainment of journalists compared to other groups of people. And in terms of the percent of, uh, of people working at the New York Times who had gone to what is considered an elite institution, it puts them on educational par with senators, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Now, if you've read a recent article in the New York Times by probably pretty much any one of their reporters, you'd be scratching your head thinking, oh, yeah. well, they're not anywhere near the, the level of someone who's created a, a very successful business. Or, I mean, I won't speak that highly of senators, to be honest with you. <laughs> the Fortune 500 CEOs, at least, it's a pretty pretty crazy comparison. And I think it's just an important reminder that the purpose of our higher education system now is not to teach critical thinking or to prepare people for work or for life, but it really is about indoctrinating a specific set of beliefs. And so I don't put any stock whatsoever in whether or not someone has a college degree, because I just don't think it tells me anything about their ability to think or perform or do well on a job. Um, at this point, because of how far left the colleges have, have become, it's just basically useless. I mean, honestly, when someone tells me that they're considered highly educated, it's um, like a red flag. When they when they say they're highly educated, that's like saying they're tough. When they themselves tell you how tough they are, mm -hmm. the only response is, besides punching them right in the mouth, is, 
uh, do you think David Brooks is a conservative? And if they say yes, <laughs> then you can just laugh and walk away because uh, th- that it's a joke in, in and of itself. That's exactly right. We're speaking to Amber Athey, author of a great book, and I recommend it highly, The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijack American Media. And I please caution you to tell all your children and all your, uh, your, especially all the ones that won participation trophies in school, uh, to, you know, they, they, they became all stars, even if they couldn't hit a curveball, uh, because mommy and daddy were holding their hand. Yeah. Don't waste your money on journalism school. Otherwise, you know what? The, the punishment could be they even got an internship at the Chicago Tribune and then they could watch it collapse from the inside because i don't know i'm just an old town all-timey broken down newspaper guy that the the left and all the radicals and uh, the snowflakes on twitter hate but i'll tell you this go woke go broke that's how journal that's the model of journalism today amber do you agree with that well there's plenty of evidence for it just in the past two weeks we've seen a massive amount of layoffs among mainstream media from the Los Angeles Times to Business Insider, CNN, um, I believe the Washington Post just laid off people. And it's because fundamentally their readers don't trust them anymore. And if you're going to ask people to pay for a subscription to your newspaper, you have to be adding value. And I've noticed um, a- another sign of of what's been happening in the media is the rise of new positions um, in terms of the beats that people are covering. Oh, Until five years ago, right? You'd never heard of, of, a, of a, a race and justice reporter. That didn't right. exist. Right. You never heard of an environmental justice reporter. Um, you never heard of a women's issues reporter. I mean, it's like they've taken these waste of money uh, college degrees and turned them into... Uh, beats to cover in the media. And when you read the articles that are coming out of, of these, these beats, these job positions, it's like you're reading a thesis from like a progressive PhD candidate um, who's just been consuming like left-wing drivel for 10 years. It's, it's horrible. I guess they must've been the photo editors at Sports Illustrated. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it worked, Amber. No, it, it, I don't think so. And uh, the gender, the the radical gender ideology with the transgender craziness has infected the media so much. It's commonplace now for the style guides of major news outlets to use terms like pregnant people or people who menstruate as opposed to women. Um, the Washington Post and Politico both have this in their official style guides that you're supposed to say pregnant people. Um, I report in the book that Politico uh, revamped their entire style guide in response to complaints from some low-level staffers to remove all gendered language, which included things like manhole, man-made, mankind. <sighs> um, you can't say biological man or biological woman because that would suggest that a transgender person is not actually the gender that they say they are. Um, I mean, just total craziness. On, on that Sunday in May, I believe, where women are taken to brunch, it's a horrible cattle call and it's 
it's always crowded and people are crying and screaming and there's a bunch of ill-mattered children who are hungry and all that torture. We have to call that birthing people's day? <laughs> yeah, I think so. If you're <laughs> following the style guides, um, that is the new rule. Right. And a lot of these newsrooms as well um, don't just hire activists who are making no effort to shield what they believe when they're doing their so-called reporting, but they're also bringing in outside activist groups, like explicitly ac- activist groups, to come in and lecture reporters on how they're supposed to write about specific issues. So at Politico, for example, they brought in a group of transgender activists to tell the newsroom how they were and were not allowed to write about transgender people. And uh, they said that the term mother could be offensive. And they mocked the reporters for having a hard time grappling with the grammatical implications of using they, them to refer to a singular person. And it's always, con- said, it's always confusing, Amber. It is confusing. And they also said um, that what they believe to be covering both sides uh, is transphobic because the other side is a side that um, is advanced by white cisgender men and thus for, that therefore can't be trusted to be accurate. That's the craziest thing I've, I've I've recently made myself aware of, and the, the idea of wokeism and woke ideology is this idea that you know, evidence based logic and evidence based decision making is somehow considered evil because it's historically white men used it throughout history, or whatever to to keep people oppressed and whatever. So the idea of that you know we're living a meritocracy. It just goes away because the apparently logic and evidence are bad. I mean, how have you? Am I the only person who's just seeing this now? Has this been going around forever? I mean, I feel like this is like the next step when you try to dismantle one of these arguments. This is what they throw at you, and it's just you know moving the needle. And and I feel like I'm going nuts. It's been going on all my career, Amber and Jeff. All my career in journalism. I remember I came to the Chicago Tribune when, and I was so happy. It was like uh, one of the great days of my life. And I remember being a copy boy, running up, running copy for the perspective section. In those days, the perspective section was the sober analysis of the week. And the, uh, the art was always pen and ink, India ink drawings. I mean, perfect. It was like so... It was like the old spectator, Amber, if you can imagine that, the old, old, old spectator from decades ago. And then uh, they got woke. They got woke to the point where, well, I couldn't work there anymore, and others couldn't work there. And I think, I think now they're giving it away for a dollar every for six months. One dollar, six months. Is that what happens, Amber, in in uh, Chicago and elsewhere? That you charge pennies on the dollar for what you used to charge people subscriptions for? Yeah, I think a lot of places have no choice because the subscriber numbers are just dwindling, and um, a lot of newspapers rely on a combination of subscriptions and ad buys, and the ad buys have decreased a lot too, um, mm-hmm. which funnily enough, is sort of the result of this internal woke mob because they um, 
they they take issue with some of the straight news reporting. Um, so, for example, at the New York Times recently, there was a huge revolt among staff members because they had um, published an op-ed that was questioning uh, gender transitions for minors, and they accused the paper of being transphobic. And what the woke mob does really well in terms of exerting pressure on people to change their opinions or to at least not talk about them publicly is that they go after advertisers. So they do this with newspapers. They do it all the time with Fox News. I mean, if you see Media Matters, they are constantly publishing like lists of Fox News advertisers and encourage boycotts against them. And so they're actually destroying the media industry with their activism because they're taking away a lot of the monetary revenue source for papers by taking away advertisers because they're exerting pressure on advertisers not to place ads with uh, media outlets that they consider to be saying the wrong thing. Well, who is who is Media Matters funded by, for example? They are George Soros, I believe. They're founded originally by David Brock, and I believe he still funds them pretty significantly. Where did he get his money? David Brock was just a journalist. He was just a like he was basically a little hack on the right wing and hating Clinton, and then jumped to the left wing because it paid more. And he was he's like an apparatchik out of a, (laughs) a Russian novel, you know, in that respect, going from the Reds to the to the whites back to the Reds. Dr. Zhivago, for example, and uh, I don't know where he gets his money, but I know he has his supporters and adherents, for example, in every major radio station in Chicago. I'm not going to mention one, but think of it. You can mention you can think of the prominent voices that are constantly. You could hear in their voice. They never say it, but you can hear the fear in their voice when they when the subject turns to a controversial issue, like uh, should we have should we have mandatory castration for eight year old boys? I don't know if it's that's not not uh, controversial to me, but it is to some people, and uh, and so they respond accordingly with tightening of the vocal cords, and the, mm-hmm. the registers go up. You can you can just basically sense it in the discussion, can't you? Yes, and radio is a significant portion of my book because I was yes. fired from a radio station mm-hmm. for um, the tiniest of supposed sins. I had made fun of Kamala Harris's um, outfit that she wore to the State of the Union, and the left called me racist, and the radio station fired me. And what did you I, call her? I said she looked like a UPS employee, and what can Brown do for you? Nothing good, apparently. Um, Big deal. Very mild. I've had yeah, much well. better jokes. It's it kind of sucks to be fired for a joke that's not even that good. But <laughs> um, I found out that of course there's there's basically a few companies that own most of the radio stations in this country. It's very rare that radio stations are family owned or or independently owned anymore. And the large corporations. I mean, we see this. This is sort of an offshoot of media in that the corporations are are terrified as well of these advertiser boycotts. They um, are, they're terrified that the woke mob will go on some social media spree against them. They think like five people 
tweeting about something as a major PR crisis because they don't understand how social media works. And so they always err on the side of being cautious when it comes to what the talent are saying on air um, because they don't want to run afoul of, of this mob. Um, so they end up giving the mob a whole ton of power. So that's what happened to me. A few people complained and they got rid of me. And I found out actually um, after doing some digging into who was actually on the board of this company that there was a Media Matters executive who was also a board member at this major radio conglomerate. And this radio conglomerate oversees uh, hundreds of conservative talk radio stations. Sounds like you're talking about Cumulus to me, where I used that, to work. And Jeff. That's right. Yeah, we both that's did. exactly who I'm talking about. Yep. Yeah. Well, Jeff and I and uh, Jeff Carlin and John Cass and Dan Prof could no longer work at Cumulus. <laughs> no, we could not. Right. Well, and, and the board, I mean, outside of just the Media Matters executive, I actually went ahead and I went through all of the board members and I, I break it down with specific numbers in the book. But uh, I went through and I found all of their political donations and it was something like a 10 to 1 split of them donating to Democrats over Republicans. And yet they're supposed to be uh, able to oversee conservative programming. It just doesn't make any sense. It's you have people in charge who are fundamentally different than the listeners and what the listeners want to hear. Okay, let's talk honestly and straightforward to our listeners. The cons- as far as I see it, and could be wrong, but as far as I see it, in Chicago, Salem Broadcasting, uh, Dan Proft and uh, the Morning Answer and, and that, those folks on that part of the dial are the true conservatives on radio. Uh, I love w- the Morning Answer, by the way. You, have you done uh, interviews with Dan? I, I have. I go on there uh, probably about once a month. Excellent. Yes, he's good. I love uh, maybe, that show. Maybe that's where it was subliminally placed in my head. To talk. <laughs> and uh, and um, Dan and Amy. Yeah, Dan right. and Amy. But the other side is uh, Cumulus in Chicago is WLS, which has fake conservatives, like uh, people who pretend to be conservatives the way Mitch McConnell pretends to be a conservative Republican. They're all combine hacks. Show pony conservatives. Show pony conservatives. Let's cave, let's cave at the border and say we're trying, you know. Mitch McConnell, he's the man. Yeah, that's a kind of conservative there. Uh, Andrew, I got to ask you, because we're radio guys. How did you get into radio? I mean, what was what was the draw there for you? I was working at the Daily Caller at the time, and my Mm -hmm. colleague, Vince Colonies, was hosting the morning drive show on WMAL at that time. Mm -hmm. And he asked me to come in and guest host for his female co-host who was out sick, uh, Mary Walter. And so I started doing that on occasion whenever she was out. Were you nervous the first time? I was pretty nervous the first time, but (laughs) I had the benefit of... Vince handled all the the intros and outros and all of the ad reads. And so right. he kind of guided me through it. And I started to get more reps in and started to really love it. I especially loved just there's a, a unique connection with your listener on radio that you don't really get anywhere else yes. because you're hearing from them in real time. Mm-hmm. And there's something really special about that. So I uh, I ended up being hired after some programming changes. Vince was moved to the afternoon show. Larry O'Connor was put in in the morning, and I was one of three female co-hosts that would do a couple days a week with Larry. 
that was the show that I got fired from. And then for almost two years after that, I had a Sunday night show on WCBM, which actually just ended its run. But that was a solo hour, which was amazing. It was my first time hosting a radio show by myself before. And I fill in occasionally for Kim Klasik and Rob Carson on Newsmax Radio. Um, so it's been so much fun. I, I really love radio, and I, I hope I get to do it more. Well, is Newsmax conservative? Because I wonder if Fox News is conservative now. I, I doubt it. But To be fair, no one's ever conservative enough for me. So yeah. I'm not the best judge of like what is and isn't conservative, right. because I'm never sure. fully satisfied. Right, me, me neither. <laughs> Me neither. I'm a, basically I'm a constitutional monarchist with absolute powers. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Amber, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and we'd love to you know get your insight. Uh, do you follow Chicago politics much at all? I mean, I know there's it's hard to miss some of the big national pointy heads, as John would say. Um, uh, but well, the mayor has a pointy head. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't follow it much, but the national stories that cross over, I'm definitely always paying attention to. I have to admit the Lori Lightfoot tenure was um, a news gold mine. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was also a hair pulling nightmare. Sure. Um, <laughs> she was a favorite here. She, she was. I liked her. I liked we were, her. With, we were early adopters, John. We were. Well, look, I adopted her because you know why? I liked her tailor at first. It was a <laughs> tweed. A, a woman in tweeds is like part of my, uh, you know, I don't know why I'm a sucker for that. I used, <laughs> you'd think I'd be a sucker for like uh, Gina Lola Brigida, but no. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, Amber, we'd love to, you know, connect with you again and, and, Maybe get an outsider's look on uh, what's going on. Are you coming to Chicago for the DNC coverage? Or do you know, I mean, it's a little far out now, I know, but are you hoping to make it here? As of now, yes, I am planning to be there. Cool. You have to come visit us because uh, Chicago is our town. And, you know, the mayor has already had like several panic attacks that Jeff and I have talked about with yeah. with people. Wow. And he's, he can't handle it. And, uh, He's freaking out. And the journalism here is basically used to pride itself on being tough guys. But, you know, that's what we talked about earlier. When you say you're a tough guy, you're really not a tough guy. When you say when you hear somebody call, saying they're a tough guy, the, the re- proper response is punch them in the mouth and break a few teeth and then <laughs> see how tough they are. Uh, but I'm not talking about violence, really. I'm right. really a gentle soul. You know, metaphorical punching. Metaphorical. <laughs> well, Amber, where do you uh, people find you best on X Twitter? Is that the you usually push people to that? I know you're active on there. Yes, that's definitely the best place. So my handle is at Amber Marie Duke. I actually just got married, so I'm in the name change process. Oh, good <laughs> luck with that. Thank, Thank you. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Do you go by Amber Duke or by Amber Athe? Because I've seen it both referenced both ways. Yeah, so I am going to be going by Amber Duke now. But of course, the my maiden name is on the book. So <laughs> sure. I, I can't okay. fully divorce myself from it just yet. Yes, I agree 100%. Whatever you want to do on that score, you've got our support, right? Because we're both married men and we understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Amber, thanks so much. And everyone go out, get the book, uh, Snowflakes Revolt. It's it's a great on-the-ground perspective of the, what colleges have done to newsrooms specifically, but 
generally to the generation of snowflakes that are now running all the things we used to love. The snowflakes that came into the Chicago Tribune uh, joined the Chicago Tribune Snowflake Union and then got rid of me and other people in the union. And they have, they have still, they have uh, agents on the outside saying, John Cass is all completely wrong about what happened, you know, but I'm not because I lived through it. Amber, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Amber. That was great. Thank you for being here. Thank you both so much. That was a really fun conversation. For Amber Athey, editor at The Spectator, author of the book you have to get, The Snowflakes Revolt, How Woke Millennials Hijacked American Media. And for Jeff Carlin, executive producer of WGN Radio, future physics teacher, husband to Christine, friend of many, many cats, unfortunately. And for me, John Cass, editor-in-chief of your favorite website, where you always get a good cup of common sense, John Cass News. I hope you like the Michelle Obama prophecies because that's not that chapter's not done yet. Join us again next time for another edition of the Chicago Way Podcast on WGN+.